Welcome to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast, where successful entrepreneurs get their brains picked so you can apply mindset tricks and game-changing tactics that will help you become unstoppable. Now, here's your host, Daniel Geffen. Hi, fellow listeners, and welcome to episode 24 of Can I Pick Your Brain? Today, I am really excited to be picking the brain of Darren Murph. Darren is the founder and CEO of Page52 Consulting, but he's not just any ordinary consultant. He has spent over a decade working remotely and has visited over 40 countries. In fact, he holds a Guinness World Record for the planet's most prolific professional blogger and has published over 6 million words of content. Darren has been featured on major networks including Oprah, ABC, PBS and NBC to name a few. And his latest adventure on his journey has led him to publish a book called Living the Remote Dream. Darren, welcome to the show and thanks for letting me pick your brain. Of course. Thank you so much for that welcome. I'm not sure I'm deserving of it, but I'll certainly take it. Thanks for the invite, Daniel. I like like humble guests. They're the best. (laughs) (laughs) Now, before we get into your crazy journey through a world of content and continents, why don't you take us back to the beginning of your journey? What was it like growing up? Growing up, yeah, I, uh, I lived in a very rural place, just uh, a few hundred people in my town. And so I actually spent a lot of time outside, uh, which is kind of a foreign concept for kids growing up these days, or, or so I hear. But, uh, but right. when I was inside, you know, I had a, a great fondness for technology. Uh, I, I owned all of the Nintendos and Segas of the world. I worked hard at chores to earn those things. And I, I sort of figured that at some point I would, I would do something in the realm of technology. And I just so happened to be an avid reader of a technology publication publication called Engadget back in 04, 05 when it launched. And uh, I saw they needed a contributing editor. This was uh, early 06. And so I thought, why not? I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. And one thing led to another. And I was I was given the incredible opportunity to start writing for that site uh, and mentored by the founders, Peter Rojas and Ryan Block. And it all blossomed from there. That was sort of the golden era of technology mm-hmm. blogging when people figured out there was a niche audience that cared a lot about uh, the realm of technology. And believe it or not, I started writing about technology before the original iPhone even existed. Uh, it's fairly difficult to remember what life was like pre-iPhone. Uh, I, right. I think we wrote a lot about MP3 players. That's <laughs> that, that's <laughs> that sort of uh, made up the bulk of our content. But yeah, so I, I held on for an eight-year amazing ride at Engadget uh, and then went uh, over to the PR side and the communications consulting side for a couple of years. Uh, and now I'm, I'm back in media. But I've always had side projects, consulting projects along the way. I've, I've been blessed to work with a lot of companies here and there on nights and weekends on really fun passion projects. So yeah, it's been an exciting ride so far. How old were you when you started at Engadget, your first article? That is a great question. I want to say 22, maybe 22 or 23. Yeah. And and before that point, you didn't write anything? You weren't into writing? Was it your first time writing? Yeah, so this is crazy. I went to university for for business. I had a supply chain degree and went on to get an MBA. And I had to take one communications class. I think it was English 101. And uh, it was... It was in the top three of my my least favorite courses. I did not like really? I didn't like it at all. And you know what? Fast forward ten years, looking back, and I think the reason was they tend to to structure those courses and make them extraordinarily rigid. And I have found that the best storytelling and the best communications, the stuff that really resonates, is full of personality. It's off the cuff. 
the more structure you put around it, the more it feels like advertising or pre-planned promotion, mm-hmm. which doesn't tend to resonate. And so it's funny. Yeah, right. I look back and I think, yeah, I would I would never want to to write words for a living in a structured environment. But thankfully, blogging and, and digital marketing and, and to a large degree, advertising now, it really relies on that off the cuff human element. That's, Storytelling. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because just before we, we went live, actually, uh, me and Darren, uh, we were talking and uh, one of the things I mentioned to you was that I don't really have like a script necessarily. I mean, I have a few pointers just to get me through the conversation and, and things that I obviously need to remember. But other than that, I don't like the whole, you know, let me, I'll ask you a question, you answer, and then I'll move down the list and ask you another question because then it just doesn't flow and it, it doesn't feel like a conversation and uh, you know, it's something that I've picked up along the way, um, listening to Tim Ferriss. He's an incredible interviewer. But let me ask you this, because you you clearly love traveling. I mean, you, 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 <laughs> you, you've, you've visited 40 countries, which that seems a little obsessive. I mean, where, does that, where did that obsession come from? When you were younger, did you travel a lot? Or Yeah, we did. My, my parents tried to take uh, two or three vacations a year, and, and we didn't have a lot of money. And so a lot of it was uh, via road. So uh, I'm from the from the United States and it's, you know, we're, we're full of roadways and, and short on trains as it goes. But yeah, we would, we would try to take short trips here and there. And, and there was just a particular fondness of getting outside of your comfort zone and experiencing other culture. Cause even in the States, it's such a big place. I grew up in North Carolina, but if you take a trip down to Louisiana in, in the Bayou country, it feels like a different country. I mean, people talk differently. They have different values. It's really, really incredible. And early on, I had a particular fondness for, wow, there's a lot outside of my hometown and county and state and so on. And it really, it really ramped up when my wife and I were fortunate enough to go to the big island of Hawaii for our honeymoon. And nice. that's, a, that's a pretty far destination from North Carolina. And I remember when we got there, I thought, man, if this place exists, how many other amazing places must exist? And so the bucket list creation got started right away. And we've been trying to to knock it down ever since. It's just, it's a lot of fun to get out there and see what else is out there. It's a, it's a big world and we only get one chance to run around it. So I'm trying to make the most of it. That's incredible. I mean, 40 countries in how long? How long has that? Yeah. You know, with the, with the exception of Germany, which my parents took me to, my, my cousin was stationed in the Air Force over there in 1995. With the exception of that, everything's happened post-wedding. So in the last 10 years. And we, we've also managed wow. to, to drive a motorized vehicle in all 50 U.S. states in those 10 years as well. So even uh, <laughs> I, some people will count airports, but uh, airports are this weird like international gray zone where you're not really anywhere. It's a no man's land. So We've managed to actually physically get out and enjoy, even if briefly, all of the the 50 states. So that's been a fun journey. Have you ever woken up and wondered which country you were in? Ah, which country? (laughs) You know, actually, yes. Uh, Coming back from like double red eyes from Asia, you do because you wake up one evening from a plane ride and you're in you're in some airport, uh, and then you wake up again and you might be home. And after a while, the beds sort of uh, sort of start to feel the same. But you know, that's that's a cool problem to have. I mean. It's a, right, hundred percent. Yeah, it's cool. And did you did you stay in hotels during when you're going traveling, or are you hitting up people's homes? How's how does it work? It's a mixture. Yeah, uh, wherever we have friends, we'll try to see them. It's a good opportunity to to really to get in their culture and get in their home there. Uh, it's it's a good cost savings as well. And we try to host people whenever they want to come to our side of the world. Uh, but yeah, hotels. Uh, we we've stayed quite a, in quite a few hotels and. 
a lot of that has been due to earning and smartly spending points. There's a there's a great site called The Points Guy. Actually, my buddy Zach Honig is the editor-in-chief there, and there's a lot of great tips on making the most of, of traveling and points. And if you have a job that, that allows you to travel, you can save things up and every couple of years really take advantage of a pretty cool vacation. And it's it's all about earning and loyalty. And uh, there's some complications that go into it, but we've been some pretty fun places that I couldn't have afforded otherwise. So. Obviously, there are people listening to this and they're going to be wondering, you know, how can you afford to travel so much? I know you just said that there are obviously points and there are ways to to sort of get cheaper travel. But at the end of the day, if you're going to be traveling and you're not you're not going to be working, how are you earning a living while, you know, while visiting all these countries? Yeah, there's a couple of ways to go about it. Perhaps the most simple one is to get a job that requires travel. So if you have a job that in the job description, they're going to send you here, there and everywhere. Yeah, there's some downside to that. You'll be away from home and you'll miss some things. But the upside is all of that travel accumulates a lot of points and miles uh, over the duration of it. And also uh, they send you to really amazing places. So let's say you get a job where you have to travel to Tokyo. Well, Tokyo is is not far from a lot of amazing places in the world. And so if you go over there for a week on business, carve out a few days before and after and and just go on your own, explore, make an effort to see what's around wherever you currently are rather than just rushing back home. Uh, The other is if there are certain fields, programming is a good field, marketing and consulting can be good fields. Online education can be a solid field where you really can work from anywhere so long as there's an internet connection and you have the determination and perseverance to to get up perhaps with a, a beach just outside your window and actually put in a hard day's work before you go enjoy that beach. And if you commit to this sort of long-term nomadic travel lifestyle, it's actually not as expensive as people think. It, it is really, really expensive to own and maintain a home and lifestyle in a developed mm-hmm. country like the UK or US. And if you take that money and you say, well, I'm going to spread this out over three or four or five years and you live long-term, I mean, there, there are people all over the world that will rent out flats for, for months at a time at an incredible discount. And you just eat like the locals, you live like the locals. You have to be committed to it, but you know, if you can if you can get yourself situated for a couple of months at a time, there's no reason why you can't work from from Ireland for two months and then go to the Seychelles for two months. You know, as long as you stay That's there, crazy. stay well, there long enough, it it helps um, helps those costs so you, drop down. You don't have a base. I mean, are you saying that in the last ten years of marriage, you've never really had a a base? Like a rent, you've never rented for more than a year? No. So my situation is more closely aligned to the former example. So my base is always, okay. well, for the most part, has been in North Carolina. Uh, my wife's a wedding photographer, and a lot of folks flock here for the beaches that are here. So when we say home, home is here. But at over half of the year, I've been on the road. And that's mostly because uh, at Engadget and at Weber and, and now at Tech Radar. So much of my job involves going to where the news is and going to where the action is. And so let's say Apple launches a new iPhone in San Francisco. Well, I'm going to San Francisco for a few days. And so what what can I do with that? And so if you ask yourself that question, every time business takes you somewhere, you can get to some pretty cool places along the way. Wow, that's very cool. Your first article took you a few hours to write 144 words. <laughs> and in fact, your fiance, who, who is now your wife, she complained and she said, you know, you're wasting your time. And she even called it a hopeless hobby. Yeah. You know, you recognized it as a ticket to freedom. Can you take us back to that point in your, in your life and talk us through how you managed to stay positive and hopeful? Yeah, sure. So I did 
what most people tend to do right out of university, which is take a full-time job in a corporate office, sitting in a cube with whoever you interned with during your, your years at university. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I'm thankful for that opportunity. But I realized really early on that just wasn't for me. Just being forced into the same cube for eight straight hours looking at a spreadsheet where I could just as easily look at that spreadsheet from any continent in the world and accomplish mm-hmm. the same thing. It just became obvious that I was sort of being forced into a construct that that didn't really resonate in the modern world. I mean, the internet exists, telecommunications exist, and a lot of businesses just aren't taking advantage of it. And that just struck me a bit odd. And it just so happened that that, that post came up on Engadget looking for a contributing writer. And I said, you know, I'm willing to devote my nights and weekends to something different uh, in the hopes that this blossoms into something else. And mm-hmm. that's what that's what happened. And I really what it came down to was I had an absolute passion for writing about technology and putting my thoughts and opinions out there for the world to see and and feeding back from the audience. If you don't have a passion for whatever that side project is, you won't last long. I mean, it it was not a lucrative endeavor for a very very long time. And how long did it take? How long did it take for you to start making actual profit? Well, I was a freelancer there for three years before it became my full time job. Uh, before wow. I, before I was able to before there was enough work there to justify having me on full time. I mean, that's real. That's real dedication. I mean, for people listening here, you know, three years to to put all that effort. I mean. And imagine year two and you still haven't made any money and your wife is still, you know, you know, crying about how it's how it's a waste of time. How do you keep going with it? You have to have a goal in mind. You have to have it leading to something. And for us, uh, right after we got married, we actually moved out of state for this job because that's what people do. You just move to wherever the work is. But it, our families were back home. Our loves were back home. Our passions were back home. And I could tell that if I could make this job work, it was my ticket to get back home. And that's a powerful thing. If you give somebody an incentive to move or go where they want to be, they'll do almost anything to do it. So for me, that's what it was. Wow, very very cool. And you know, I really relate to your to your situation there because I mean, I first of all, I I run my companies remotely. I have two companies that run out of the UK. I live in Israel, um, in the Middle East, right. with my wife and three kids. And so I number one, I work remotely. Number two is when I started the podcast, which is only about three months ago. My wife kept saying to me, "Oh man, what is this? This is not going to make you any money. Why don't you just focus on your businesses and blah blah blah?" Like you know, your your businesses are making good money. Why do you need to be doing these stupid interviews? Sure. And, you know. But I love this. Like this is this is this is my passion. Like you you just said, you know, if you're passionate about something, you can keep going. You can keep doing it. And this is a passion that I have, and I I could you know. I don't know where it's going to take me, but I love doing it. And you proved your wife wrong. I mean, you won a Guinness World Record. Can you can you can you explain how you achieved that? Yeah, a lot of that boils down to just sheer passion of what I was doing. Basically, I was writing for a technology publication, and you ask yourself how much technology is there to write about? Uh, once the iPhone happened, it was almost an endless stream to write about. W- there was never a time where you looked up and thought, oh, there's absolutely nothing happening in the world of technology today. And because of that, it enabled me to grab onto it and say, yeah, I'm going to be the guy that that writes a lot about this because it's what I love. And I never set out to, to set a record. What ended up happening 
is uh, at, at CES, I believe it was 2008. So for those that aren't aware, CES is the Consumer Electronics Show. It is the year's biggest week for new gadget reveals. It happens every January in Las Vegas. So we sent a big team, and myself included, to Las Vegas to cover all of the latest and greatest happening. And just to give you some, some perspective, we usually hit two to 300 stories in one day on the opening day of CES. There is that much happening across the team. That's and crazy. in a 24-hour period, I wouldn't recommend this, but I actually stayed up a full 24 hours and just committed to writing as much as I could. And I got through 58 articles in 20, 24 oh, hours. And it was at that point that one of my dear colleagues, Chris Ziegler, uh, who's now a reporter over at The Verge, he said, man, I'm fairly sure you've written more than anyone else in this industry because I've been in it as long as you have. And I can't think of anybody else that has done this. And I just sort of blew it off. And I said, oh, that's, that's a cool thing of you to say, but I got work to do. So fast, <laughs> fast forward another year. And uh, I, had, I had kept the pace up and he said, look, man, I really think you've written more than anybody else. If you don't apply for this record, I'm going to do it on your behalf. So I said, all right, I'll do it. I'll do it. And sure enough, if you go to the Guinness World Record website, you can apply for a record. And there's a lot of drop down fields of which category is this. And of course, right. because blogging was so new, well, my submission was other, other other, other. And then there's this field at the bottom where you have to explain what you're trying to apply for. And so by that point, I thought, whatever, I'll apply for it. I know this is going straight uh, to the spam folder. No one's ever going to look at this. But as it turns out, a few months later, someone from their headquarters in London got up with me and said, look, this is really, really interesting. Here's what we're going to do. We're putting a team on this project. For the next three months, we're going to scour the internet and try to prove you wrong. We're going to try to find someone that has actually done more than you in a paid blogging seat. And wow. they, they really did. And it took about six months, all told, to actually get the record and they'll send you a plaque. And it's pretty remarkable. And I say all of that to say, if you know anyone with a Guinness World Record, they don't just give these things out. I mean, the, the checks right. and balances that go into making sure each one is actually a record is extreme because that name means a lot. And these records have to actually be rock solid. So it was an incredible journey. I mean, I, I just the, the feeling of that plaque showing up was <laughs> truly surreal it is it is very very cool and i'm thankful to have had the opportunity to do it that like i said it was just the golden era of blogging it was there for the taking and i look back and the the record is a post every two hours 365 for four years that's what it averaged out to and i think could i do that again today i i don't i don't know that i could i don't know that i would it is it is an incredible thing to think about but i think what helped was i never actually stopped to think about it i was just doing it it was something that i loved it was a cool a cool era where something like that needed to be done and there was an audience for it and yeah i just looked up one day and thought man I guess I, I guess I've done, I guess I've done more than anyone else in the industry. It was pretty cool. Has anyone overtaken that? To date, no. To date, no. Really? And, um, Nobody's overtaken it. Yeah, and the cool I'm thing tempted. is, <laughs> oh, well, the, the cool thing is the the time element is factored into the record, and so it's not about because you could say, okay, look, fast forward a hundred years, uh, someone yeah. at that point will have written more quantity wise, which is probably true, but will they be able to do it in that four year time span? Probably not. I mean, maybe. Look, man, if you can do it, all all power to you. It, it's not impossible, but you're going to need to work in an environment where there's that much to write about. And uh, technology is a good one, but there aren't too many like that. Have you figured out a dollar amount that all of that content would be worth? 
It's hard to say because so much of it was news driven where it mattered for the week and the month. But mm. now an MP3 player, player that I wrote about in 2006 probably yeah. doesn't have a whole lot of value outside <laughs> of archival and historical right. value. So, you know, kids 20 years from now will say, oh, this is this is what we wrote about in 2006. Right. It's, it's hard to say, but I, I do know that the combined team effort at Engadget, we, when I, when I came on, there was maybe five or six of us. And now it's up to 50 or 60. It's a, it's a 10 year old publication with a lot of credibility in the industry. And it's less about what I did and more about the sum total of what everyone did to build that brand into something that people trust over time. And I think that goes to show it's, it's not about content having an immediate ROI. It's about doing something over a sustained period of time that you know will lead to trust and clout and credibility. And that's what we did. We just believed that long term, it would work to build a brand into something that people came to and came to trust. And that's what has happened there. Right. And you've written over, what is it now? Is it 6.5 million words of content? Is that the total amount? Yeah, I've stopped, I mean, I've stopped tracking it exactly. I, I think it's close to seven now but uh, seven million words yeah. of content I mean, that makes me feel like throwing up with anxiety I, mean, <laughs> I, I struggle to write a 250 word blog post for crying out loud can you share with our listeners and including myself as well here i mean some tips on how to write consistently great content yeah the first thing i'm going to say is very counter to writing great content and that is to read a lot there's a really? There's a hedge fund manager named Warren Buffett who has made himself billions and billions of dollars, and he's a really smart guy and knows what to invest in. And on a given day, he just sits down and reads for anywhere from one to six hours, just soaking up as much as he possibly can. And wow. if, a, if a guy that's running, he has 360 or some odd companies under his belt, if, if he can find time to read, it, it's probably an important thing. And the reason I say that is some of my my best writing came from first reading other writers that I really, really respected and picked up on things that they use and tricks that they use and hooks that they used. It really comes down to practice. And it's the whole 10,000 hour rule. If you put in 10,000 hours of effort, you're going to be pretty phenomenal at something. But 10,000 hours takes a long time to get to. And it's one of those things that you're not going to be great at immediately. But if you commit to it and write on a daily basis, I mean, you're not going to write your best stuff every day, but you're going to look up in a couple of years and, and realize how much better you have, have got. And the, what I told new hires at Engadget and, and even now is it took me about two years before I completed a post and then looked back at it and thought, this is 100% the best take on this particular topic on the entire internet. It took two right. years for right. me to feel that confident in what I was doing. And I have yet to figure out a way to speed that up. You can teach people new vocabulary very quickly. You can teach them hooks and formats and templates very quickly. But yeah. confidence is really hard to teach. And it just comes with a sustained effort on writing every day. If you just say, I'm going to write one a day, just commit to it. It's not a lot. It's not very different than committing to a weightlifting program once a day or learning a new language. You're going to practice 30 minutes a day. Now, of course, day by day, you're going to see almost no impact. But fast forward two years and you're going to be a lot better at whatever that thing is if you just commit mm. to trying it every single day. And I think the key there is really consistency, you know, because if you're writing once a week, you're not going to be as prolific as if you're writing every single day. Yeah. 
And by writing every day, it forces you to pay attention to what else is going on. And it forces you to read what other people are writing. And that helps build confidence. Because if you are focused on writing about a certain industry or topic and you just completely ignore it for one to two weeks, it's going to it's gonna take a toll on your confidence. Because the next mm. piece you write, you're going to think, wow, what did I miss over the past two weeks? I, I feel like I'm writing in a vacuum and I don't have the proper backstory and I don't know what has led up to this over the past two weeks. So really immersing yourself in whatever it is you're writing about goes a long way to build that confidence and indeed build the speed because there's less you have to research because you stayed in it throughout the duration. How do you avoid, you know, overconsumption? In other words, yes, I understand what you're saying about reading and, and, and consuming in order to become better at producing. But then there's the problem that so many people have, which is that they spend their whole day consuming and consuming and they look at this blog and they read this book and they watch this YouTube video and they get really inspired. And at the end of the week, they look back and they go, crap, I haven't produced anything. I've just been consuming and consuming. Yeah, I think largely what that is, is we're consuming whatever platforms tell us to consume, and we don't pause to think about whether or not it's wholesome for us or good for us or useful for us. And so if you open up Facebook without even trying, you're just going to be fed whatever the algorithm tells you to consume. Mm. And, and I think that's the wrong way to go about it if you're trying to produce content for a career or for uh, an end goal. So what I did is I actually curated my own list of authors and blogs that I wanted to read on a day-to-day -day basis. And of course, they all had to do with technology and culture because that's what I was writing about. And so I just mm -hmm. turned a blind eye to pretty much anything else that was outside of that because there's just too much out there to try to read all of it. And so it really comes down to a determined effort for you to curate your own feed. You have to curate whatever it is you're going to read on a daily basis and then don't allow those other things to be distractions. Very cool. What are you con what are you consuming at the moment? What are you spending your time consuming? Well, now that I'm I'm back in the technology world, a lot of it is similar to what I read at Engadget. So I pretty much look at Engadget, TechCrunch, and a lot of the tech publications, and I see what they're covering. I see what is resonating with their audience. Uh, I see if there are any authors that are doing long form or feature content that I really like that I can mm -hmm. follow along. And uh, MG Sigler is a great one. I started following MG when he was at TechCrunch. I just loved his bravado and I loved his just his boldness and, and what he wrote. And now he's moved on. He's outside of the tech world. He works at Google Ventures, but he still tries to write one post a day, uh, even after he left blogging. And he just puts it mm -hmm. up on his personal blog. And it's a must follow. I, I try to read it every single day. But you know, I only have about 10 that I read every day. And if you ask most people how many pieces of content they consume on a daily basis, it's well over 10. But then if you follow right. that up with how many did you actually choose, mm. they'll say none. It just showed up in my feed and I just right. sort of consumed it because it was in front of me. And right. I think that that's a big problem because it can become incredibly overwhelming and there's no focus to that approach. And it's great for entertainment. It's great for junk food. It's great for waiting in line at a restaurant. You just want to consume something quick. But it, it doesn't really do you a lot of good when it comes to learning about a topic or focusing on a topic. Do you regret having wrote all those articles for another company instead of having started your own blog? And you would essentially today own all of that content. No, do I, I do know what you mean. I, I don't at all. And the reason I say that is it was never a personal goal or a personal project. And even now, even though I have the world record, it, it is shared with 
30 or 40 other people and honestly an entire industry because that industry exploded at such a pace that it gave me the opportunity to write as much as I did. And I really do think that it wouldn't have had the same impact had I started it myself. I think using the Engadget medium and learning from all of the other writers that were there enabled me to do what I did and become as good as I became. Most of what I wrote was directly learned from Ryan Block, Peter Rojas, Josh Topolsky, Paul Miller, sort of the pioneers of gadget blogging. Had I just set out on my own with no mentors or no support system, I would have burned out a lot earlier and I wouldn't have been I wouldn't have been in a position to learn what I learned. So there's something to be said about being in a team. And I, and I think a, a good way to go about it is to perhaps do two things. And the, the reason I say that is when I was at Engadget writing, that was my day job per se. And that's where I learned a lot. But I also consulted with companies on the side and I was able to tap into their brains and different experiences and stay dynamic. And, you know, it's especially when you're working remotely, it gives you the opportunity to be flexible with your hours and, and do additional things where you can learn from different people in different walks of life. And so, you know, for people that are struggling, do I do it on my own? Do I go somewhere where I'll get paid to do it? Maybe do both. You know, life is short. And if you have the determination, we live in a society now where you don't have to only do one thing. When people say, what do you do? I mean, tell them a story. Don't tell them a one-liner. You know, if it it, Mm. it goes on for a few paragraphs, that's not such a bad thing. Right. And in terms of like writing on your own blog versus writing on a platform, for example, Medium. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Medium. What would you recommend people listening to do? Should they be focusing on writing content on their own blogs or should they be writing on platforms such as Medium and other you know blogging uh, platforms that already exist with an audience? I don't think there's a one size fits all answer to that. I think it is largely where you already are in your publishing. So if you have absolutely no traction or following whatsoever, it is really to your benefit to publish to a place like Medium where there's a built-in audience waiting and it's easy to share and it ties into platforms that are already out there. It just gives you a leg up. Now, if you're trying to start a small business and use content as a component of it, maybe a marketing component or just trying to get your voice out there. Let's say you boot up a website and you want to tack a blog onto it. That's a little different because now you're relying less on the blog to be a daily driver and more of just an informative tool if somebody shows up at your company portal. Mm -hmm. So in that case, I could see maybe bolting it on and making it a little bit more insular. But I still have yet to see a real downside to either cross-posting on Medium and LinkedIn or using those solely as the drivers, because that's where the people are. And uh, it's, it's a pretty cost effective way to get the word out there and make it easy for people to share if they agree with what you're saying. Right. And they say that content is king, but we live in a generation where basically content is cheap. Mm. I mean, everyone's throwing content around. How do you make your content stand out? Yeah, I have, and, I, and I'm one to say it, uh, of quality over uh, over quantity. I mean, I, I produced a lot of quantity over the years, but I also never wrote anything that I wasn't incredibly proud to have my byline on. And, and I look back and think, yeah, that was, that was high quality and that was useful. And that either informed or entertained and hopefully did both. And I think that's sort of the metric for me. If you say, I want to produce something, it needs to inform, it needs to entertain, it needs to have 
a usefulness and a utility to the reader. And if you put that amount of thought into it and you still say, yes, this is worth writing, I think that's a good enough gut check to go for it. So if it if it comes down to producing a lot of quantity versus quality, always are on the side of quality. It won't always get you a huge, huge reaction. But if you do it over a sustained period, if you write one amazingly useful, insightful piece per day for a year, maybe mm. on the 366th day, a piece <laughs> that you write catches traction on LinkedIn. And then you get people looking at your name and then they think, oh, well, what else has this person written? And all of a the sudden, they have an archive a year deep of all of this amazing stuff you've written. Very interesting. And right. uh, that leads to conversations. And so it's never right. going to be one thing that happens. It's about the portfolio of work that you put together. Right. I mean, there could be people listening who are great writers and they know what to write about, but their question is, well, how do I get it out there? In other words, what platforms would you focus on right now to get the most exposure of your content? You know, that is, it's an amazing question because if you had asked that when I started at Engadget in 2006, (laughs) almost none of the platforms that I would recommend now they didn't even exist. And <laughs> what's crazy is that when you look at platforms like Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Snapchat, Medium, these things are always evolving and the tides of what matters are constantly changing. And so what's curious about that is if you start publishing today on Medium and you, you publish daily for two years, I can't promise you that Medium is going to be the hot new platform in two years. Maybe something else will have cropped up and you're going to need to gravitate to that. And so I would actually recommend writing your initial content in something that's highly portable, even if it's just text edit documents or something that is platform agnostic so that you can port and change along with societal changes on what platforms matter. And you just got to pay attention to what's popular and and what matters. And if you're a business-minded writer, LinkedIn's going to be a great place for you. If it's more comedic and funny and in the moment, Snapchat's going to be a better place to try to get, get your name out there. But make no mistake, it is difficult these days to catch on and become something big in the publishing world when we are just overloaded with content. And so it's it's no longer a overnight sensation type of deal where you can just put out content on LinkedIn and then five days later you have thousands of shares. That almost right. never happens anymore. And so there needs to be something more substantial behind it, content that relates to a business that you're building or relates to a company that you're working with. Uh, content for content's sake really doesn't have a place anymore just because there's so much noise already out there. Right. You kind of have to just be smarter. You have to just kind of go at a different angle than everybody else. You do. In a way. You do. Yeah. Yeah. And it needs to really relate to something tangible. People want action. If they read a piece and then at the end of it, there's no action, there's no company that it's referring to, there's no way that you can help them based off of that. It's uh, it's a bit of a non-starter. Yeah. We've got plenty of entertainment content. What we need is utility content. Right. I mean, this is going to come out of complete left field, but your late uncle, JR, he understood that life is best lived with a pup by your side. Mm, Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, that was a a personal element of the book. My uncle was, he was one of the best men I've ever knew. And he and his wife, they, they had Boston Terriers. That was the dogs that they had. And I think they had four of them through the course of their marriage. And whenever we went down to visit him, these dogs were, they were just a beacon of light, always positive. And no matter what kind of day he had, if one of them jumped in his lap, everything became better. And it was just an interesting <laughs> moment for me uh, when you think it's sometimes it's the simple things of just pausing and being grateful and being happy 
about what it is you have in the moment, even if things aren't working out particularly well, especially in a remote lifestyle, because it was in that remote living book. Sometimes things, uh, they're a struggle and, um, you know, flight plans go awry and plans that you had lined up don't really work out and freelance projects come to an end before you'd like them to. I mean, it's not all, it's not all roses all of the time, but if you can right. latch on to something simple and in my, in my case, it was a pop, uh, I just saw how much of a difference that made in his life. And now when I look back at what made him happy in life, I can't ever think about him without his pups. And uh, it's, <laughs> it was just a personal anecdote, but it's something simple. I think if you, if you wake up every day with something simple in mind that you can always refer back to if things start going mm -hmm. sideways, it goes a long way to maintaining that perseverance and determination that I think helped me get through four years of prolific writing. I, I don't think I could have right. done it without something like that. I mean, I, I love it because for me, if I'm having a bad day, all I need to do is just look at one of my three children, sure. you know, just, just stare at them, just, just watch them play. And it just gets me out of the hole. It, it kind of brings, brings you back to the reality of life. It kind of brings you back to what's, what's really important. Like, you know, oh, okay, you know, the business deal didn't go through or you lose a client or whatever it is that happens in the business, in your business world. It just shades in comparison to the importance of a little girl who's just playing and, and she's healthy. And, you know, it, that's what brings me back to my reality. And I think for everybody, it's something else. Yeah. For your uncle, Jared, it was his pup. Yeah. What keeps you like consistently motivated? Because you're, you're very, you're like always going. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I think in the forward to your book, who is it that wrote the forward to your book again? Tim was, Stevens. Um, yeah, Tim, Tim Stevens. Stevens. Yeah. He just goes on about how you are like high on life, but like that's an understatement for you. How do you stay so high? You know, it, it, it really boils down to uh, just an incredible awareness that the time we have here is so short. And uh, I've lived long enough now. I mean, I'm only 31, but I've lived long enough to know, especially with my uncle, things can just completely change in a moment. And so many people will say that at a cocktail dinner, They'll, you know, life is short, or I want to go do this, or I want to go do that. And then they proceed to spend the next 12 months just working for the man, pushing the clock, it nothing actually changes. And it takes a lot of determined effort to do something different than that. But mm -hmm. if you ever latch on to it and you ever see and feel anything different, uh, it's just, uh, it's addicting. It really is. I mean, you'll find some people that are more avid travelers than I. And if you ask them what they love about it, they say to some degree, they can't even put it into words. It's almost an addiction at this point. It's just something that you have to keep doing because you know life is short. And you, if you, it's, it sounds strange to say it, but if you keep an eye on that, you'll push yourself to do things that may seem to be a hassle. Like, oh, that, that I don't, I don't really have those four days to shove in between this trip and this trip. No, you do, you do, you have that. And if you don't take advantage of it, you'll never get it back. And it's, it's really living intentionally to try to squeeze something special out of every day. And it, it doesn't necessarily have to be traveling or, or landing a, 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 an amazing business deal. Maybe it's something as simple as, as you said, focusing 
on watching your children play because that day you'll never get back. And uh, it's just really being deliberate, being deliberate about work, being deliberate about family, being deliberate about whatever it is your goals are. So for us, we have an actual bucket list that I actually pull up every couple of weeks. And if I, if I see that I on the horizon, I'm not scratching any of them off. It starts to bother me. And I think Mm. goal minded people, that could be anything. If you see those goals that you set for yourself and they aren't happening, you start to reevaluate what you're doing to try to knock those off. And I think that goes a long way to doing it. It's really as simple as creating a to-do list and forcing yourself to stay on top of it versus just letting it drift. It's amazing. And recently you published a new book called, I mentioned this before, it's called Living the Remote Dream, a guide to seeing the world, setting records and advancing your career. Can you give our listeners an idea of what to expect if they buy a copy of your book? Yeah, of course. So half of it is sort of a retrospective on my career at Engadget, which was fully remote. I was never in one place more than about two weeks for eight years. And uh, I give you a look into that just to prove that it can be done. And even an esoteric type of job, like a blogger, that is not something that uh, your parents probably said, hey, go to go to college and become a blogger, <laughs> probably. <laughs> but but there are in the Internet age, there are so many jobs that can be fulfilling and can be sustainable and they don't have to be location dependent. And so half of it is that. And the other half is just anecdotes that I've picked up over the years on what works, what doesn't work. And for people that really want to get out of the box, I focus on certain career paths that I have seen a high likelihood of working in remote fashion. And there's one chapter in particular that focuses on how do I make the best of the job I currently have? How do I talk to my manager about a flexible work schedule, maybe shifting into that remote lifestyle? It is possible. Uh, I have actually worked at jobs where there were it wasn't listed as a remote position. There was a location by the position. But if you get in there and you kill it and you make yourself valuable, good talent's hard to find. And if you're willing to work from anywhere and still deliver top class results, a lot of managers are willing to work with you because honestly, the managers want to be remote as well. I don't, I've yet to meet a person that just loves trekking in and commuting into the office every day if given any other alternative. Uh, and so right. it's sort of an unspoken thing in the world of uh, high leases and we have all this real estate, we have to fill them with people. But if you get in a, a good environment with an understanding manager and you're willing to put in the work to do your job from anywhere, a lot of them are surprisingly understanding. And where can our listeners purchase a copy of the book? So it's on Amazon. And if you need some help getting there, my website, DarrenMurph.com, has an entire page dedicated to the book. And uh, you can click over from there. I also have a link in the show notes. If anybody wants to just uh, click on the link there, they can get a copy. Also, Darren, what's the best way my listeners can get in touch with you? Yeah, so get at me on Twitter. I'm at DarrenMurph or email Darren at DarrenMurph.com. Very cool. And again, those will be in the show notes. Darren, you've been a huge inspiration. It's been really great getting to know you better. Thank you so much for letting me pick your brain. Thank you to all my fellow listeners for tuning in. I'm looking forward to the day when I'll be picking your brain. You've been listening to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast. Inspiration without perspiration is like a tiger without teeth. So to put these ideas into action, head over to danielgeffen.com.